Well, we're going to continue our series on prayer, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And with the same theme, as we started last week, timely upward conversations. Prayer, timely upward conversations. Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Verse 20. This gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, help as we study your word today, please. Four things in this passage I'd like to concentrate on. One, varied communication with God. Two, incessant communication with God. Three, other focused or congregational communication with God. And then what it means to be gospel focused in our communication with God. Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. While he's in prison in Rome, he's writing to four churches. Ephesus, Colossae, the church that we have the letter called Colossians. Philippi, the Philippians, we have the letter called Philippians. And then to a man named Philemon, his friend. And uh, the interesting thing about Paul is that though he is in prison, experiencing untold difficulties, we're not talking about there being prison advocates out there storming the gates of Rome in the jurisprudence system, saying, we demand our rights. We'd like education in the prison. We'd like reform in the prison. This was all about punishment. That's it. No comfort. Trying to figure out how to, to compete with the rats and your, yourself for the bread that they gave you, and that was meager. It's horrible. And he knew on top of that that he was unjustly put there. He wasn't a criminal. He was just preaching the gospel, trying to help people, bring them closer to God. And for his convictions, he was now incarcerated. And you would think that the conditions and the fact that he was unjustly put in them would cause some kind of thing to rise up in his soul, an angst that would say, this needs to be fixed. I'm not being rightly treated here. And somehow or another, justice needs to prevail. Vindication is from the Lord. Let it happen for me. I tell you, if I, if I was in prison, I, 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 I'd probably have that attitude. If I was preaching the gospel, then would throw behind bars for doing so. I don't know if I was writing a letter back to Grace Covenant that I would wait till like chapter 4 to tell you <laughs> that I might be incarcerated. In fact, throughout the entire letter to the church at Ephesus, we hear very little about his incarceration, very little about his personal circumstances. In fact, the entire letter is about what the church at Ephesus needs to do. There, there is one time that he talks about being a prisoner, and that's in chapter 4. And, and he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. He doesn't even say a prisoner of Rome. He said, I've been I've been captured by God before Rome ever got me. 
Paul looked at his present circumstances, as difficult as they might be, as a leverage moment to do something even greater through them. And anything through which he was going that was really hard turned out to be really great. We find our difficult circumstances, those about which we need to complain, do we not? Hmm. Maybe not you, okay. You holy <laughs> Christian, you. Not so much me. I have a hard time restraining my mouth from talking about how difficult it is. But we don't see Paul doing that at all. Now, we know of his difficulties, but the only reason we know of his difficulties is because he said, my troubles are those for which I want you to know I, I will boast. I'm not complaining. I'm letting you know this was, this was my inheritance, to be beaten with rods five times. Uh, to, to be out a day and a night in the sea on driftwood, to be betrayed by brethren, to be naked, starved, without sustenance, to be stoned. <laughs> that one there? I mean, we read our scriptures realizing they're really holy and, and important and, and they need to be taken as face value. But sometimes we read them too quick and we don't get the ink in what it means. He said, he, he said I was stoned. Now, he's the first man to ever talk about surviving an execution. Every, nobody else could say it because they were dead. That's how bad this man's life was. When you are stoned, it's not only the people who first accuse you of the stoning that need to throw the first stones. It is the entire congregation that is there so that they can witness the fact that execution is actually happening and they can be sure that you are dead. And hear me, I've never been stoned and don't happen, don't, don't hope for it. But my sense is this, once they drop four pound rocks on your head over and over again until there is a pile about four feet high under which you sit and that is your permanent grave, you feel like it would be better to go to heaven. Don't bring me back. Every bone in my body is broken. My organs are bleeding. I, you talk about CTS. I can't even think straight. And I don't even know if my brain will ever work again. All my teeth are out. I can't eat. Lord, take me home. This is a good moment. They took him outside of the city of Lystra. Stoned him. I think it's Acts 15. And all the disciples then took him outside the city further to bury him. That was, that was the goal, to bury their apostle. And when they got outside of the city, I don't know how, but it's, it was something like this. Paul went, whoo, whoo, that was hard. All right, let's go back in the city. You want to go where? Those people just killed you. Now, how many conversations could, does anybody have that sound like that? They just killed you. He said, I boast about my weaknesses. It's been really hard. But these are things that I bought into when I said yes to Jesus. I'm not complaining at all. In fact, they are leverage moments for the gospel to progress. And so I embrace it. You talk about an unusual human being. Oof. If I was writing back to Grace Covenant, verse 1, I'm in jail. 
Y'all need to pray and get me out in a hurry. I don't like it here. It's terrible. Kim Jong-un, he doesn't like me at all. I know I probably should have done better and not preach in the square in public and tell everybody they needed to repent. Probably needed more wisdom, but I'm telling you, I want out now. I'll be smarter later. That probably would have been Brett. Paul never mentions his imprisonment. An amazing human being. And he says, when he's talking about prayer, he says, I want you to pray at all times with all petition. Now, he's using two different words to talk about the kinds of prayer that we need to employ. One is the, the, the kind of general prayer that is very formative and somewhat orderly. It helps us stay in line with the most important things about which we need to talk to God. And then there's the other kind of prayer, which is the urgent prayer, the 911, I need you now. I don't have good English. My, my grammar just doesn't fit this very well. So just show up, please, and help a brother because I'm in trouble. The orderly prayer and the urgent prayer. And the orderly prayer is much like what the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. Now, we have this famous prayer in, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and we, we, we've titled it the Lord's Prayer. And the disciples asked him, please, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, the reason they were asking Jesus to teach them how to pray is because they saw the religious leaders praying, and they really didn't want to emulate that because it seemed somewhat hypocritical. But their prayer life wasn't, wasn't very effective either. And I don't know what the conversations would have been like, but see, Jesus would go up on the mountain and pray, and he would talk to God sometimes all night. And the relationship he had with him was unusual. And seeing how Jesus communicated with the Father... And then knowing what the disciples had in terms of lack of knowing who they were talking to when they were talking to God, the conversations had to go something like this, though we don't have it recorded. Like, when you go up, what do you say all night? I mean, I have unloaded everything I got in five minutes. I'm done, God. I, I, there's nothing more for me to say. But you can talk to them all. What, what kind of relationship do you have? Because, like, I'm, I'm pretty much prayed out. In five. So could you teach us how to communicate with him like you do? And so we have this beautiful prayer. Now, the, the good thing about the beautiful prayer is that it is recorded for all of posterity. And we, we got it down. The, the shortcomings is that we don't read it the way it was intended to be heard. The disciples didn't say, teach us what to say. They said, teach us how to pray. But we interpreted, they said, teach us what to say. So when we say the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we think we've done our good deed. We've communicated with God according to the Lord's prayer, the way he told his disciples to pray. It's a holy prayer. It's a holy prayer. And I said, a holy prayer to God. Now, anybody who wants to recite that prayer, as I just said, I'm not mad at you. I'd rather have you say that than nothing. Please talk to him. Talk to him. I love it when you approach him. It's good because when you're in his presence, he might just make you better than if you weren't. And however you get there, I'm glad about it. But I think I can upgrade you a little. I don't think Jesus intended for us to say this by rote. 
I think he intended for it to be an outline that we are to fill in with the information most important to our progress in relationship with him. So when you pray, say this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay? God, you're my daddy. Now, if you have given your heart to Christ, if you have repented, if you turned away from your life of sin and selfishness, the way you wanted to live, and decided to live for God with all of your life, if you've accepted the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave for you on the cross and realized that he died for your sin, and now through him you live, we call this the born-again experience. You may not realize what it is, but that's what it is. <clears throat> and as a result, you get the privilege of being born twice, meaning you were born once of Adam or your natural mom and dad, and now you're born by God, born of the Spirit. And as a result, you get to call God Daddy. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, when you approach the Father, I want you to know you get to approach him as Father, not just as God, but as Father. And he's a Father that's different than all fathers, though he is the Father from whom all fathers come. He was the mold from which every other person tries to figure out what right looks like. And because of that, though you might understand something about fatherhood through how you were raised or how you are raising your children, you don't understand at all because he's not like you. Though you are a father, he's different. He's a father who is in heaven, and he's perfect. And he will never, even though he's daddy, he will never be pops. Never. There is a holiness and a reverence and an awe that you need to have when you come before him. Because he is not like you, Amen. nothing like you. Though he's trying to make you like him, there's a long way to go to make that happen. And so when you approach him, realize he is other. He's a father in heaven. He's holy. He's pure. He's able to hold justice and mercy and tension with one another without any conflict. He's benevolent. He's kind, even though we are unkind. He pursues us when we run away, and that to offer mercy, not judgment. He is provisional, even though we don't deserve it. And, and when, even, when we get the stuff he gives us, we use it wrong, and he still opens his hand to provide. He is other. So when you approach him, he's not pops. Be holy. In your conversation with him, be holy. And our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your name is set apart. It's, it's different. It's, it's not like Brett. <laughs> Your name, oh God, oh, you just, there's nobody like you in the universe. And the Jews looked at his name as being so different that when the scribes would, would record other passages in, in, as copiers of, say, the Torah, and they would write God or Yahweh in the Hebrew, they would take the stylus that they were writing and throw it away after they wrote the word because it needed to never write anything again. That's how they described it. I'm not saying that's what you need to do. I'm just letting you know that historically, that's how they viewed the name. Yet today, we'll take the name of Jesus Christ and use it in, in place of an expletive. Please be careful. Or we'll take the title of God and then use an expletive after it to describe our displeasure with something. Please be careful, because that's his name. And we need to be careful about how we say it, not only because he is different than us, 
but because when we really need to use it in order to change the circumstances in which we find ourselves, because we have used it without much meaning, when we need to use it, we don't know how much meaning it should have because we've used it wrongly for so long. And when we used it wrongly for so long, it didn't do anything when we used it. Now when we want it to have some power, it doesn't because we don't use it right. Not because it doesn't have inherent power. It does. It's just that God loves to work through human beings, and when we aren't as right as we should be, nothing happens as well as it should. Now, I love it when God does stuff all by himself. I love it. And he did stuff all by himself, and that's how you got saved. Are you listening to me? Don't think that he hadn't done enough. He's done so much. But now he wants to participate with you so you can grow up in the process of what it looks like to steward his will in the earth. And so he says, I want you to cast out devils. I want you to use my name to heal the sick. I want you to bring my will by invoking my name into circumstances that are going contrary to what I want. I want you to participate with me. But the problem is because we've said it so wrong, so long, when we try to use it, it doesn't feel like it means as much as it should because we haven't held it in reverence. This is why he said, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth commandment. And not only is it about speech when we recognize the holiness of God's name, it's also about adopting this name for our lives. I mean, you are Christians, which means Christ-like. That's what it means. Christian, Christ-like, which means he has given you his name. I did a wedding this last weekend, and uh, the, the bride uh, at the rehearsal dinner was talking about how much she loved her parents and what they meant to her. And I mean, it was, it was effusive of praise. She so appreciated their sacrifice. It was a moment. The Holy Ghost fell in the room, tears. It, it was one of those honoring things that you just can't replicate except that a child do it to a parent. I could say it and honor them, but it's nothing like when the child does it because it's one of those honor your mother and father that your days may be long on the earth, and when you fulfill the will of God, all of a sudden the Lord shows up. It's really cool. And she said this, so at the very end, after she was talking about all the things her parents did and did not magnify all their mistakes, though there were many, she just, she just let the umbrella of thanksgiving begin the, be, be the context in which she was giving her comments. She said this, and you all have been so good to me, and I honor your name. It means so much to me to carry the name Docs. That's her name, main name. And the only man I'd give it up for is this one here. She looked at him and said, I'm glad to take your name. I said, that's some good stuff right there. <laughs> I never even preached that before. That's some good stuff, girl. I said, I'm going to use that in all my premarital counseling from now on. That was great, just great. And then in the vows for the wedding, she pumped it to another love. She said, I want you to know when I take your name, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to love you, and be faithful to you for all my days. Now, for all the women out there who believe that taking the name of a man is a misogynist tendency, a cultural bias against women, let me help you for a moment. I'm sorry we have messed up what relationship ought to look like. We Cro-Magnon human beings called men. I'm sorry. But the original meaning was this. The thing I got that's most valuable that nobody can take, I want to give to you. That's how much I want to identify with you. Would you please take my name? That's what that's supposed to mean. And the woman doesn't just take the name. She takes the value therein. 
That's what she knew about. I taught him that one. I taught, I taught him that one. So she was so happy to take the name. It cost a lot to get you right. There's a lot of value in this name, Christian. Somebody had to die for you to get it. So when you take it, don't you take it in vain. You live right. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy. Holy is your name. Thank you for giving me your name. Thank you for identifying with me. Now, I spent eight minutes on about nine words. Magnifying the moment that is the first phrase that Jesus talks about when he talks about outlining how to communicate with me in an orderly fashion. And most of us, when we come to God, we lead with, okay, I, my, my child has gone crazy. My marriage isn't right. I don't have enough money to pay the bills. My health, I need something there. Lord, I got a whole list here. So, like, I'm going to read it off, and then you do it for me. Not one request yet. Holy is your name. Secondly, thy will, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. God's, God really wants... He, it's, so much of our salvation is about getting you to glory because it takes you out of the other place. Good Good, good other destination. Good, great other destination. But our living is not about trying to get there in a hurry. Our living right is about trying to bring whatever is in heaven here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, just like it's done there. So every day of my life, I'm trying to make my life a little outpost of heaven, my home, my church. Some place where the kingdom of God can come in concentration in that without dilution. Where everybody can experience his goodness and grace at levels like they never had before. Lord, let your kingdom principles and your will be done in my life. I set my priorities according to your will, not my will. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. So that when I want what I want, it's because you want it. Set my heart right. Let your kingdom come, all of your authority and power come to my life in a way that it looks like I'm abiding in heaven every day. Amen. Now, once you've talked about who he is, once you've said you want to live right, you want to make sure you're abiding the name, considering it holy, and once you set your priorities, then you can get to the third part of the prayer. Give me this day what I need. Give me this day my daily bread. You, Jesus did not want us to ask for that which we need until we got who he was right and our priorities right. Because if you, if you don't have those two right, you don't know how to ask. And you don't know for what you need to ask. Once you get your priorities, well, it's straight in, in order. Then you can say, oh, I know I need this in order to fulfill that which I just talked about. Orderly prayer. Now, I'm going to let you look at the rest of it, but that's the kind of thing we need to practice on a regular basis. We don't just need to make all of our prayer moments those which are prompted by the unusual circumstance that is killing us. The 911 moments happen, but I can almost guarantee 
that if you do the orderly prayer, you'll have fewer 911 moments. Because we live lives in such a way as the enemy attacks us. I, I can't stop his arrows. I can stop their effects in my life to some degree, but I can't stop them from shooting them at me. But I can stop myself from shooting holes in my own boat. And if I do what I'm supposed to do in those first two areas of prayer by acknowledging who he is, making sure I'm living right, and making sure my priorities are set so that his will is done in my life, it, I'm, I'm, much more, I'm much more unlikely to shoot holes in my own boat and do stupid. Because stupid causes me to have 911 moments. I just made a mistake here. Oh, Lord, help. Now, those petitions are what he's talking about when he talks about urgency. Lord, show up. I need you. But you want to make those rare and generally only precipitated by outside forces that are coming against you that have nothing to do with your wrongdoing. Now, if you have done wrong, God is merciful. Everybody say amen. amen. And he loves to help you through those moments. But the goal is to have those be few and far between. And so we need to have varied prayer, orderly prayer, as well as those urgent 911 moments. Communicate to God about those. And make sure when you are talking with him, point two, that your communication doesn't stop. And it doesn't mean by way of communication not stopping that you need to talk all the time. Anybody know someone who does this all the time? <laughs> now, everybody laughed. But you are that person, somebody out there. <laughs> somebody out there is that person. And when you see that person coming to you, that you know just is going to do this all day long, and they think they're having a conversation with you, but it's really a monologue, and it wears you out. When you see them coming from a distance, what do you do? <laughs> you don't even want to confess it in church. You go the other direction. Because you know, I can't take it today. I just can't take it today. Don't make God want to run. You're not a very good conversationalist when it comes to talking with him. You don't know what you need to say as well as you should. You don't know how to say it. Your grammar is not that great. You got to see in the language that's native to you. Whatever it was. If you're Spanish and you took Spanish, you got to see. How's that? We're not good at communication. We just don't do it that well. And God knows what you're going to say even before you say it. So why in the world do you think that you're going to be heard for your many words? It doesn't mean he doesn't want to, want to hear you. What it does mean is that he wants you to grow in communication so that you can say to him what he wants to be done in your life. So that your will is his will. And you are praying his will into the earth. That way, it's coming out of your mouth, and you are now invoking his presence and his purpose into your circumstances. So he's using you as a vehicle to bring and insert his intervention into your life. It's a beautiful thing. So he wants you to communicate, but it should not be all you. You need to have your ear attuned to hear what he wants to say while you're in prayer. Communication is a, is a two-way street here. And so when he says pray incessantly, he's not talking about or pray at all times. He's not saying talk all the time. He's just saying make sure that you are constantly on point, that you are, there's an unbroken communication line from you to God so that even 
when you're going through the most difficult times and it seems like your soul is really unsettled and you can barely tell which way is due north in decision making, that you can have this gentle whisper that comes to your ear and the Lord says, stop. Go this direction. Say this. Why? Because you haven't left his presence even though you're at work. He hasn't left you even though you've left your devotional time. You're always in communication with him. And that always allows you the privilege of having input that you wouldn't otherwise. Incessant. And you want to make sure that he is with you at all times. It's beautiful. Third, you want to make sure that your prayer is focused on others. He said, and you're praying at all times in the spirit. And make sure that when you pray, you're praying for all the saints regarding their issues. Now, most of the time when we come to God regarding the things that are most important, we're at the top of the list. It's what's happening in my life, my children, my workplace, my purpose, my relationships. And Paul says, pray at all times, but make sure you're concerned about the saints. And in doing so, what it does is it allows you the privilege of identifying what it means to really take on the mantle of Christ and be more mature than just somebody who has a personal relationship with God. When you think about it, Jesus did the most outstanding thing when he was on the cross. I mean, dying was enough. He didn't even have to say what I'm going to say. He could have just gone on and been all right by just expiring on the cross for our benefit. That would have been enough. And it's, 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 it's amazing and, and over-the-top great. I run out of superlatives when I think about how magnanimous that was, yet... The last statement before his last statement. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> what inspired that? Surely it was not the people who had put the nails in his hands. Not the people who were jeering at him saying, if you are the Christ, pull yourself down. He was able to save others, but he can't save himself. Everybody else was against him. A few people there at the cross, Mama, John, Mary, some other little, but most of the disciples had left. What inspired a man to tell God, don't get them even though they're getting me? And on top of that, it already bypasses the idea that he needed to forgive. That was a given. And, and, and let's face it, sometimes you, dear, wonderful believer, you, you go to God when somebody's done something bad to you, and you realize you need to forgive, and you do it. So happy. And we pat ourselves on the back thinking, thank you, Lord. But in the background, we theologically reserve this one little thought. Now, if you want to get them, God. I, I, I ain't gonna stand in your way. I just want you to know I release them from anything they've done. But vengeance is the Lord. So, <laughs> up to you. Now, we may not say that, but we evidence it by showing no sense of empathy when we see something bad happen to, to them as a result of what we know they've done to us. There's something on the inside of us that says, see? Mm-hmm, mess with me again. 
I don't know anybody who said what Jesus said. Daddy, I know you're mad. I know you could get him, rightfully so. But I'm begging you, don't. Don't. Let him go. Wow. How's your prayer life when it comes to others? Praying for all the saints. The saints need your prayers. And they need them to be accurate enough whereby they really help. The church needs to pray. And everybody wants somebody to pray for them, but rarely are they praying for anybody. I'm begging you. Paul says here, you want to pray right? Pray for others. And then lastly, he says, pray for gospel progress. Hmm. And he says, pray that I can preach the gospel with boldness. And this after the fact that he evidently preached pretty boldly to where he got in jail for it. So he's saying, he's saying this. If, if we kind of flip the coin, I don't want to be afraid simply because I suffered for doing right. Help me to drive out the fear that would cause me to make a different kind of decision because I'm bearing the consequences of my good behavior. I want to preach with greater boldness. Pray that the utterance of my words would be even more powerful than they were before. What a man. And most people being incarcerated would say, pray for me that I can get out. Pray for me that I can get out in a hurry so I can do what I need to do. But Paul was able magnificently to leverage these horribly ugly moments for gospel progress. It's amazing what Paul was able to do. As evidenced by the fact that when he was in Philippi, having been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and Paul ministered about 27 years, we think, and well over, probably 15% of it, he was in jail. So at least three to four years in jail. He spent a lot of time behind bars. So he was no stranger to what a prison was like. He was in Philippi for preaching the gospel. And he had a buddy with him named Silas, and both of them were thrown in the hole, we would call it, because it says they were in the prison, but in the inner prison. So they were in jail, but they were in the jail in the jail. And then while they were in the jail in the jail, it says that they were chained. Wow! You would think this was really difficult. And, and again, there was, no, there was no advocacy group. And so they were, they were fighting with the rats for the crumbs of bread they were given. And in the middle of the night while they were in jail... The sound came from the hole. And everybody was saying, what in the world? What's that? And they were singing hymns to God. Praising. Most of us, there would have been sounds coming from the hole if I was down there. Oh, 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 God, I was just trying to do right. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, Lord, help me, help me, help me. Those would have been the sounds that would have come from my jail cell. But they were praising. Oh, and all of a sudden, as they praise, it says the foundations of the prison shook. All the jail cells were open. And the shackles fell off Silas and Paul. And, 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 and it was so, so shaking and foundational that it got the warden's attention. And he came into the prison from wherever he was and saw all the prison doors open, assuming that all the prisoners had escaped. Now, if you were in a difficult spot, like prison, a, a, a situation, difficult, something that you were in out of which you could not get on your own, and you were praying to God for release. And maybe you wouldn't even be on that, 
praising him in the middle of it, not even too much concerned about your situation, just thinking, Lord, I, I, I thank you that I was able to suffer for your name in this circumstance. And then all of a sudden, as a result, you're in the midst of praise, and something happens, and the doors just fly open. What are you thinking? Whoa, Jesus, you done answered my prayer. Hallelujah. The warden knew everybody had, had, had bounced. Everybody had bounced. He took his sword and was about to kill himself because the penalty for, for losing one prisoner under your charge was being burned at the stake with your own clothes. He said, this is less painful. And, and, and Paul heard him about to take his own life. Paul said, no, 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 don't, don't do it. We are all here. So I'm not quite sure what happened between the time the doors opened and the warden showed up. But Paul was probably having a Bible study with all these prisoners because they were all there. And the warden's looking and saying, who stays? Now, most of the other prisoners were in there because they needed to be. And they, there's nothing on the inside of them that would have thought this isn't a good opportunity. But they ran to Paul because they heard something. And then the warden got so impacted by this. He said, I've never seen nothing like this before. What do I need to do to be saved? And he led him to the Lord. He said, um, I know this sounds weird, but I got a whole family back home. Could, could you like, because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow to you guys. <laughs> so, so I need you to come to my house now. And, and, and I'm going to wake up everybody, let his whole family to Jesus, let all the servants in his household to Jesus. Everybody got baptized that night. Now, all of this is amazing because here's an opportunity for Paul to get out of the circumstance, out of the place in which he found himself, that there was no release except God released him. And God, it seemed, had released him, but he stayed. And I think, dude, you are amazing. I don't know anybody who would have stayed. But that's great. But as good as that story is, it gets better. Because after he leads everybody to Jesus in this warden's house, the next phrase says, and in the morning, they called for Paul and Silas out of prison. You were out, and you went back. You, you went back. You didn't have this quid pro quo thing, this... I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You, he loved the warden so much that he said, I'm going to go back because I don't want you to die. What a man. What a man. And here's a man who is saying, as a result of me being a prisoner, I don't want to back down anymore, ever. Never do I want to retreat. Pray that I might preach this gospel with boldness as I ought to preach. Not talking about him being released. Just wherever he was, he was leveraging the difficulty for gospel gain. And I'm sure you can look at circumstances out of which you cannot get. Places where you feel confined. A bad marriage. Kids you can't control. A job that you don't feel appreciated in. But if you quit, it's going to be worse. Circumstances that aren't good where you feel confined and out of which you cannot get. God's in the middle of it. You just need to find him through praise. 
He wants to do something greater. He wants to leverage that moment in unusual ways for your progress and everybody else around you. And we believe, as I close in preaching this gospel, I can find myself to making sure that the primary message I preach is about Jesus Christ and the righteousness that we need to uphold in order to hold his name well in the earth. Everything he's done for us and then what we need to do for him. That's a compilation of my message. That's what it means to produce a people that honor him. And we are in a people that believe that this pulpit ought to be used for political gain. I will preach and talk about things that sociologically need to be addressed. And most of the time when I do it, you're all mad at me. But it doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has to do with my perspective on what needs to be addressed most right by the church because that's what we're called to do. So we bring conciliatory principles from Scripture that allow us to respond differently than the world because we have a message that the world does not have. And we are the only ones that can fix the ills of the planet. It's not because we're so good. It's because God has a good message and he's entrusted it to us to get it out there so people can get most right. Thus, when it comes to the political things, and I watch CNN, I watch Fox, I watch all of them to get the biggest perspective possible. And, 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 and I get as mad as you do. Mad as you do. Don't like it a bit. But I realize I can be like everybody else in the world and talk bad about everybody I don't like. All the decisions they're making that aren't in our best interest. I can do that. But I watch it to pray. Because I know that my, I've, got, I've got a responsibility. I get to talk to God about these things. The world can't. I can talk to God. They can talk about people. And my God can fix stuff. This is a privilege we have. And if there are things that you know, aren't very political but, but, are, but are morally correct, i.e. abortion, that, that's something that needs to be addressed at all times, any time. It's never right at any time. And the things that our state has been trying to do in the last three months are horrific. And I don't apologize for my stance on trying to save life, trying to preserve life. It's what the Bible is all about, whether it be salvation in terms of eternity or whether it be natural. Save life. Now, if you have committed an abortion, oh, we want to help you, get you healed. And if you're thinking about it because you're in a bad situation, please don't. There are other options. My wife and I have adopted a child. Whose, whose mama thought about abortion. So we've been through the process. We know what it means to be inconvenienced intentionally in order to see somebody else helped. We're not just talkers. We are doers. But when it comes to the issues, I have to make sure that I am restraining. God will not let me become defined by a political issue or a stance. Why? Because we are the only people that have the best message to get the most people right. And if I can change a heart with this gospel message, then I can change a mind and an action. And as a result, somebody is probably now going to take the Bible as the standard by which they make all their decisions. And generally speaking, that's better for humanity in every way. So I live loving this gospel and preaching it without reservation and making sure my life is hemmed in even though I want to say stuff about stuff all the time. All the time I want to say stuff about stuff. And I'd be right, by the way. But God will not let me. He won't let me all the time. And I'm happy about my restraint. Pray that this gospel would progress because it is the salvation of the world.
do this outline. Live the way Paul asked the church at Ephesus to live by praying well.